This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. A couple years ago, we got a research project to figure out what inspires people about ISIS propaganda in the United States. Well, something jumped right out at us, Michael, that was just super crystal clear. The core pool of who was attracted to ISIS uh, today and other militant groups has changed fundamentally since 9-11. On 9-11, the 19 hijackers were all born overseas and radicalized overseas. Uh, Think of them as immigrants. ISIS is the opposite. Over two-thirds of the ISIS recruits are born in the United States. The second research thread is what you call the ISIS propaganda revolution. So uh, we have long known that ISIS has been using propaganda. Uh, It's video, it's kind of modern, somehow it has music associated with it. And what they did is they took a page right out of Hollywood, right out of our blockbuster superhero movies called The Heroic Narrative. The key point they're seeing is they're stealing Western ideas to recruit people who don't have strong ties to Islam. Bob Pape is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, where he specializes in international security affairs. Bob is also the founder and director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats a research institute best known for creating and maintaining the most comprehensive suicide attack database available anywhere. Bob has published a number of articles and books, including Cutting the Fuse, The Explosion of Global Suicide Terrorism and How to Stop It, as well as Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism. I had a chance to sit down with Bob to discuss his current research and to get his insights on how the threat of terrorism has evolved over recent years. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Bob, welcome to the show. It is great to have you. And great to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So I need to start with a disclosure. The disclosure is I am a member of the advisory board at your research institute, which we affectionately call CPOST. <laughs> That's right. I don't receive any compensation for serving on that board, but our listeners should still know of my affiliation. And the bottom line here is I carry 
biased in favor of CPOs, and everybody needs to know that transparency is important. Bob, from my perspective, CPOs is a national security research center housed at the University of Chicago. But to me, it's a special type of national security research center. It does research on important issues and it develops findings on those issues that have significant, timely application to policy, to intelligence, and to law enforcement. And you share this research, I know, with the government in a variety of ways. And I think it's this relevance that makes CPOST so unique and so special. And just want to get your sense whether you agree with that and anything else you want to add about the center. Uh, thank you, Michael. And thank you very much also for serving on our board, because the truth is, this isn't just research for research sake. It's research to matter, and it should matter to our government. There are a number of issues in national security affairs that turn on things that no matter how good our CIA uh, is, no matter how good our government is, they just can't drill into because they're about human beings and how human beings operate, such as the motives of suicide terrorists. So my first work, which started CPOST, I collected the first complete database of all suicide attacks around the world, and it made a prediction. It said if we invaded and occupied Iraq, we would touch off the largest suicide terrorist campaign in modern times. Even before the work was published, I gave that prediction to Paul Wolfowitz, then our Deputy Secretary of State, in October 2002. Now, of course, we still did the Iraq War, but he did move all of our forces out of Saudi Arabia, started an airbase in Doha, 2004. And also, in February 2004, the DOD was the first funder of CPOS, which was then the Chicago Project on Suicide Terrorism, now the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. And we have been doing wave after wave after wave of policy-relevant research, not to duplicate what happens in government, but to augment and do things where we can answer some questions, especially about how human beings and yeah. operate that others can't. Which is a great transition, because there's two specific threads of your research that I really want to drill into and talk about. And the first is what you call the American face of ISIS. So tell us about that research and its findings. Yes. Um, a couple years ago, we got a research project to figure out what inspires people about ISIS propaganda in the United States. Well, we had to start by finding out who's inspired by ISIS in the United States. So we collected the complete set of all individuals who were indicted in U.S. courts or who carried out attacks in the name of ISIS since the ISIS movement began in 2014. That's well over 150 uh, cases. And we have court documents, detailed uh, evidence about who they are. Well, something jumped right out at us, Michael, that was just super crystal clear, which is the core pool of who was attracted to ISIS uh, today and other militant groups has changed fundamentally since 9-11. On 9-11, the 19 hijackers who attacked us and killed 3,000 people that day were all born overseas and radicalized overseas. Uh, think of them as immigrants. Well, that was the case for al-Qaeda in general. They were well over two-thirds immigrants. Uh, and so it was very reasonable to think immigrants were somehow a threat. ISIS is the opposite. Over two-thirds of the ISIS recruits are born in the United States. That other one-third that's not born in the United States, they've been in the United States, many of them for decades. No Syrian refugees, 
it's not. I think only two refugees in total, correct? Two refugees in total, an Iraqi and a Bosnian. So what you have, who have been in the country many, many, many years. So they were born in the United States or radicalized in the United States. Uh, ISIS did this with video propaganda using the Internet to infiltrate videos directly into our homes in Chicago, in the East Coast, in the West Coast, in the South. This was a fundamentally new threat. We are not waging a war like we did on 9-11, and we've got to stop fighting the last war. And to show its application to policy, what does the research on the American face of ISIS mean for something like the Muslim ban? It means at best the Muslim ban is irrelevant because if the threat is fundamentally coming from inside, then banning Muslims from overseas who are not actually causing the threat will at best be irrelevant. But it's actually a little worse than that, because in ISIS's propaganda that they use to mobilize people already in the United States, they use the travel ban as evidence that it's stage one in a cleansing campaign against Muslims in the United States. So it's not just the travel ban the way often we talk about it as like a border wall issue or something related to our politics, you know, Democrat, Republican. This is a security issue, and the bad guys are using the Muslim ban to recruit. Okay, so the second research thread is what you call the ISIS propaganda revolution. And this is the one I really want to spend some time on, which is basically the story of how ISIS has been able to recruit so many Americans. So walk us through that research and its findings. So uh, we have long known that ISIS has been using propaganda Uh, But most people have thought about that propaganda as slick. Uh, It's video. It's kind of modern. Somehow it has music associated with it. What I discovered when I got into this, uh, basically with meetings at the National Counterterrorism Center, is that there were precious few people actually studying the content of the propaganda, why it was so voluminous. Uh, There were over 2,000 ISIS videos alone. That's 33 solid days of video watching. Well, we at Seapost decided to conquer the content problem and to really get inside what was actually being shown and that people were watching. And what we discovered is that there are narratives, not just a theme, but a trajectory of a storyline that ISIS used that no Islamic group, and I've been studying Islamic groups now for over 20 years, no Islamic group has used before. So the standard Islamic narrative, it's called, is a narrative where there's a community in peril, the Muslim community. You identify who the attacker is, typically the West, and then you identify that you're going to attack the attacker, and it's your duty as a good Muslim. And to be sure, ISIS still has that narrative, but that presupposes you really care about the Muslim community already. Mm -hmm. What ISIS did is they decided to go for a different mobilization pool, a different pool of people who may have very loose ties to the Muslim community and not know any Muslims hardly at all. And what they did is they took a page right out of Hollywood, right out of our blockbuster superhero movies called The Heroic Narrative. And what they did is they focused on a narrative how an ordinary individual can become super-empowered 
to help a community that he or she doesn't really even know and think of Wonder Woman. She didn't know the people she was helping. And it's because they see their own personal power coming to fore. They're conquering their own inner demons by doing that. Well, that's a narrative that Hollywood has honed for over 25 years. There are books. There are writers who have specialized in this. And ISIS has taken that, we call it the heroic narrative, to tap into people who are especially prone to take risks. And what we discovered is they especially tapped into a pool that Al-Qaeda did not tap into before in the West, criminals. People who have a prior history of incarceration or other backgrounds associated with violence. This is a pool of individuals that um, Al-Qaeda did not embrace. And we know this now with great detail. So we can compare who was an ISIS perpetrator versus who was an Al-Qaeda perpetrator in the United States Apples to apples comparisons, and we can see precious few with a criminal record for Al-Qaeda. Those couple that do exert no uh, motives here associated with wanting to have personal power. With ISIS, we see a lot more criminals. We see them with people who have very little background, either by family or otherwise, to the Islamic community. We see them coming out of prison And we see them with uh, people who are really caught by the idea they can be empowered to do things in the special world of ISIS they can't do here, like behead people. Yeah, so can you give us an example of one of these heroic narratives on videos? A good example is uh, this uh, video called Abu Muslim. Abu Muslim, the video, came out in the summer of 2014, and it's a story. It is a story of an individual who's a Canadian who goes from being an individual. He's not born in an Islamic uh, family. He's not Islamic. He becomes a convert. He has a criminal background. And then through the course of the narrative, he evolves into being what they call in the, uh, in the video one of the few of the few of the few who can really stand up and be brave in the glorious battles to win against all. And this, Michael, looks a lot like our recruiting videos for uh, some of the military. Sounds like the Marines. It's the Marines. It's a, it's a be all you can be uh, here. And But it's special. The, the point of this video, the Abu Muslim, is not every Muslim can do this. Not every person can do this. You are one of the few of the few of the few, and that's what you're gaining glory for as you go forward. Uh, Flames of War, uh, that's another very famous video, which many of these uh, perpetrators have watched, and we know this from their self-reporting. This is recounting glorious battles and the enthusiasm of the fighters as they feel these glorious battles coming into fruition. Other perpetrators point to beheading videos. They want to be the person that is, I'm sorry to say it so bluntly, cutting off the head. And that's because that's something they can't do in their ordinary world. But ISIS gives them essentially a permission or the world in which they can act out these urges. And thereby be the hero. And thereby be the hero in their own minds. We, we don't know, right, how ISIS stumbled on to this, right? Did they actually read these books that Hollywood writers have written over the years about here's how you tell a story? Or 
did they just watch, you know, Western movies and say, hey, here's a here's a pattern that makes sense for us. We we don't know. We, right? we actually don't, Michael. And, and the truth is the the books. Uh, so there's a, a man, very famous screenwriter in Hollywood who's a Disney executive called Chris Vogler. And in the early 90s, he wrote a very important book on the uh, screenwriting of, of the heroic journey. Uh, which he's had essentially effectively students. Uh, this is now in, uh, I just mentioned Wonder Woman. So it's almost in every one of the blockbuster movies in some form or other. So it doesn't really matter whether they got Vogler's book. It doesn't really matter whether it's coming from uh, Vogler's followers. It doesn't matter whether it's just watching the movies. The key point they're seeing is they're stealing Western ideas to recruit people who don't have strong ties to Islam. Right. And they're just living right in Western society yeah. so that it's not like Western society. In fact, society... I didn't want to ask you that because one of your findings, right, is that it's especially appealing to converts to Islam and to people with prior criminal records. You've explained that second piece, right, yeah. why it's so appealing to people with prior criminal records. But why is it so appealing to recent converts? Well, um, we're, we, can't, we have to be honest. Right now, we can't say 100% for sure. Because one of the things we want to do next, Michael, and we're working with the FBI to do this, is we would like to be able to interview in some depth some of these individuals to find out a little more. Now, to give you some answer, at a surface level, there is a transformation that has occurred with converts from the pre-convert stage to the post-convert stage which, at least on a surface, tracks with the transformation of an ordinary person going through that heroic journey that I just mentioned to you. But the fact of the matter is, this is one of those, uh, that one of those issues where we've done more than scratch the surface, but we haven't been able to give, like, final answers to every little corner. And that's one of the reasons why we're not stopping. We're in the middle of the research, not at the end of the research. Yeah. And one of the things we want to do is sort of learn a little more because we'd like to find out just how important it is that you were a convert because not all of them in our sample fit that. So how easy is it to actually go interview all these people? Do you need the FBI's permission to do that? No, it's not that. You need the prison warden's permission. So we've actually been in touch with the key parts of the prison system, the U.S. prison system here, and worked with their behavioral psychology. They have people with PhDs who overview uh, requests like the kind we make. And we have tried, but fundamentally... It's an issue of uh, explaining the importance of our study to essentially the wardens, because if you have myself and my team come in, and even though it's just, say, a two or three hour interview, but we need to do it like a few dozen times, mm -hmm. that can be somewhat disruptive. Now, it's not hugely disruptive, but it would be, you know, more than just coming in and doing a half hour interview. And so they have to really be persuaded that it's uh, valuable here for them to have a, a modest degree of disruption. And where are you in that process of, of having that conversation with them? Because this is really important. Well, so uh, just before I came in, I'm working with the FBI. I'm, I'm planning on coming back to Washington in order to brief FBI HQ on, on the stuff that we're talking about here in more depth. Uh, I've already briefed their field offices uh, here. And, and one of the big issues here is um, trying to have them find value in that further stage of the process. So the big change, Bob, one of the big changes over the last two years has been the loss by ISIS of its caliphate, right? Yeah. Have we seen a corresponding decline in ISIS propaganda, or is it less so? Is it still out there? What's yeah. your sense? So two answers to that. 
Uh, first, once propaganda has been produced, it's almost impossible to destroy. Mm. Uh, the Internet was built to survive nuclear war. It was built for that information not to be destroyed in the event of a giant nuclear holocaust. And what that means is all the efforts to try to censor the Internet, all the efforts to try to stop it, they can only go so far. So the the, the information that's out there is effectively out there. So those hundreds there. of different narratives that you talked about, are they're, there. they're out there. What about new yeah. content? The new content has shrunk tremendously as the sanctuaries have shrunk. So one of the things that we have discovered is that there is a correlation which many people are finding surprising because – when we think about the Internet, we think about uh, things that we can do in a small office here. And you and I are just sitting in an office, and this is about to be distributed over the Internet, and there's only just the two of us. Well, what we're discovering is there's a close correlation between the loss of the Willyots, they're called the, the provincial-level areas of ISIS, and the production from those provincial areas so that it looks, from what we can see, is that as we have shrunk the sanctuary, what has uh, we've also shrunk the production capability of the propaganda and done so in a surprising way. Uh, people that I've been talking, showing these uh, to are just really stunned that, well, I thought we could just do this anywhere. I didn't yeah, know we needed to... Uh, pick and, a computer up and take it to Afghanistan well, and the analogy, of Syria or Iraq. The analogy I use is Seapost. So we now have five offices. We have 40 people who work. And the truth is we could not have anywhere near the production and analysis if we try to distribute that across the United States with 40 people, having them all come together. Uh, I have a research director, Kevin Ruby, uh, all kind of having it organized and centralized. We're using the Internet, of course, but I think we're discovering that there is some propaganda production uh, that is seriously lost as the sanctuaries yeah. decrease. So the other question then is that ISIS, as you know, is not the only yep. um, jihadist extremist group out there. There are others. So are those others learning from ISIS? Yeah. So the key answer is um, uh, yes, in at least with two groups. So one is al-Nusra. So al-Nusra is a group that is not uh, thought to be like currently in conflict with the United States. In fact, we have uh, worked with uh, al-Nusra. But there are al-Nusra videos which have adopted and taken hook, line, and sinker the heroic journey to attract Brits to come to al-Nusra. So this is something that's really important to see, that there's been a genie that's let out of the bottle, and other groups are starting to, uh, we're also... So uh, the al-Nusra, the, the point of the al-Nusra is come to Syria to fight with us? It is at this point to come to Syria to fight, not to stay in Britain and attack, but that's a later stage in asking them what to do. Yeah. The first yeah. step is recruiting people who wouldn't ordinarily be recruited. Right. And that's the danger part, because... It's the fighter who's the danger uh, here more than anything else. So we need to see that these militant groups, it's not their technology that's a danger. It's their fighters that are the danger. Those are the people that have to execute things and carry things out. So that's why I put a lot of emphasis on the fighters. Al-Shabaab's another story, uh, more uh, development here, and especially— Al-Shabaab in Somalia. In Somalia, they are uh, fast becoming uh, number two in terms of producing uh, video recruitment. But what I have to tell you, Michael, is that we need to take the study that we have done here focused on North America, and we need to replicate this in other areas of the world 
because the narratives that we've discovered, these are not, these again are trajectories of story plots that are attracting specific subpools of individuals. We need to do that kind of analysis for, uh, in the Middle East, in Europe, and even and, in Africa. And do you think it might be different in different places? It could well be because the recruitment problem in, say, Iraq is different. So the recruitment problem, and we started to see this in some of the ISIS Arabic videos, the recruitment problem for somebody who already is a Sunni living in Iraq is do they side with the Iraqi government or do they side with ISIS? Well, that's a very different problem than you have inside the United States. And what we're seeing is we're beginning to see what we think of as possibly a third narrative structure that's specifically trying to focus on switching sides. And that's something that's very important because a lot of uh, the way we uh, fight terrorists around the world is try to embrace and partner with local groups. Well, the bad guys are figuring that out, and they're trying to figure out ways to undermine our strategy. And so that's why it's very important to start to take um, uh, and replicate parallel studies to what we've done in North America in local regions and then also another Western region, which would be Western Europe. So, Bob, just one more question, which is you've talked about two areas of future research, right? You've talked about interviewing the folks who are in jail here in the United States that have been inspired by ISIS to better understand that. And you've talked about doing a similar study abroad. What other research lies ahead? Yeah, the most important third wave of research are behavioral studies, which are already underway, which um, in about six months, hopefully we'll have the first results. I've partnered with world-class psychologists at the University of Chicago to take the video discoveries that we have and to show them to different audiences so that we can truly drill into what are the key elements, psychological or otherwise, that are at work. And these are uh, also not just with uh, doing surveys, but with fMRIs and also EEGs. So that as uh, individuals are watching the videos, we're getting biofeedback to help us really precisely identify the triggers Well, we're also doing this in not just Chicago, but also Belgium. Belgium, as you know, is the highest per capita producer of fighters for ISIS, perpetrators for ISIS. And so that means we're doing it in French. So we have French language capability. We are producing um, the systematic studies. And this is a way to really bring together the narrative analysis and behavioral analysis. So any early results from this? That you can share? The the, the number one result that we have is just a very basic result, which is that these two narratives that I'm describing for you, the older Islamic narrative, which we call the social narrative, and also Al-Qaeda's narrative. That's Al-Qaeda's narrative and then ISIS's new narrative, that it turns out with over 150 participants, it's not just Pape who thinks those narratives are different. It's not just some other professor who thinks that turns out they're fundamentally different for almost every audience who watches them, and they are not all muddied together. So that's very important because we're now proving, not just asserting, we're proving there are two distinctly different narratives and that that's how the viewers watch them. And so this is important if we're going to also then later on, and this is the next step, show that there's distinct pools who are attracted to one 
but not the other. So I should have asked a question earlier, and I'm, I'm going to ask it now. You know I said only one more question. Um, <laughs> does our understanding of how ISIS tells its story in these propaganda videos, does that give us insight into how we should push back against them? It absolutely does, Michael. So uh, one of the reasons we're working closely with the FBI is I've been a supporter for over 10 years of sting operations inside the United States. In fact, I'm one of the first terrorism people to support this because they do much better uh, because these people who are inspired often reach out to a terrorist group in the later stages, which creates opportunities to intercept them. However, the sting operations... So, so, so they have no contact with ISIS and they watch these videos and they, they get, they get inspired and they reach out. And they reach out. And we've known that now for a while. That was one of the things I discovered in, in 2006 uh, here. So that's the first time I told this to the FBI. And so we've been doing quite a bit with sting operations here, which is a trade-off with surveillance because there's only so many people, but to our good. That's how many of those plots have been disrupted. Well, now I'm trying, I'm working with the people doing the sting operations to show them the different narrative structures here, and they're finding them very, very helpful. It's not they don't have any inkling at all about this because they're obviously on the ground field agents. However, they very helpful to see the clear patterns and the clear distinctions. So number one, it's very, very important uh, to improve how we deal with uh, sting operations. Number two, it's very important for... In terms of what they say back. And what they say back and also recognizing the different patterns. So we spend so much time in the media talking about Islamic militants as uh, religious radical, uh, religious nuts, essentially, that we're expecting everything is infused with religion when, in fact, ISIS and other militant groups have long since distanced themselves from heavy indoctrination with religion because religion doesn't sell. So they're going for what sells, you see. Well, it's very helpful for the folks doing the sting operations to see how ISIS is trying to sell the product gotcha. here in a, gotcha. in a tighter way. Gotcha. Also, uh, community leaders. So we've been holding conferences at the University of Chicago with uh, the city of Chicago police, uh, local community leaders, to also give them an education because, see, those folks are not going on the Internet. They're not actually seeing this, and they, too, are just watching the little snippets on, you know, Fox News or CNN, you know, which is all just focusing on all religion all the time and not really giving a picture of... So if you ask community leaders to try to intercede... Here they don't know what the strategy is the bad guys are using to pull their people away, you see. So the very, very important uh, here. Gotcha. Bob, thank you for taking so much time to be with us. Absolutely. Great great to have you you on the show. It's just been a great pleasure. That was Bob Pape. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. 
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.